Hello, welcome to the podcast. I have a special guest today. His name is Phil Barnard. Welcome, Phil. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, we just want to encourage you uh, with this podcast. We're grateful that you're tuning in. Uh, we have over 100 listeners, and we're so excited about uh, how you have responded to this. And if you've been blessed in any way, we want to encourage you to subscribe on your podcast app and even share it with someone else that you think would be blessed by this. And uh, I have a special guest, as I just shared before, and I'm really excited. He is our new principal at St. John's School in Denver, Colorado, uh, right across the street from Wash Park. And um, I'm so excited for this upcoming school year where I get to uh, partner with Phil, and I've seen him in action so far around here, and our school is in great hands. Uh, we have an early learning center through eighth grade out here. Um, and Phil, can you tell us a little bit about where you got your education? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, as you'll pick up from the accent, I grew up in Australia and I did it. my first couple of degrees in science and physiology were in Australia and in education as well. And then I spent some time in the UK and I did my master's in education in Newcastle and then a doctorate in, at King's College London, right in the heart of central London. Awesome. So Phil will be perfect for this question that we're going to tackle today. And that question is, uh, is faith based on evidence or science? or is it only a motive? So this is a, a question that gets asked to Christianity a lot, especially in my experience. I have a lot of atheists and agnostic friends in Seattle and uh, all over the place, but one of the things they often say is, what you believe in isn't based on evidence or science. It's based on faith. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're saying is, uh, you're believing in something that can't be proved you're believing in something that cannot be proved based on empirical science where you can observe uh, cause and effect and you can actually see the afterlife or, or those sorts of things. And so uh, now the definition of faith, Phil, is, according to Hebrews, in something that is unseen. So they do have a point that we, we are believing in something that is unseen. So right now... We cannot visibly see the Godhead or the being God. Um, and also, while many people believe in an afterlife, uh, we don't necessarily have visible proof mm -hmm. of that afterlife right now. So there does take some faith. Now, with that said, though, I think in their question, there is the assumption that there is no evidence or science or reason behind our faith, mm -hmm. but that it's blind. Um, so, I guess right off the bat, what, what would be your short answer to that question before we dive in and give, give the longer answer? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, first of all, it's an excellent question. And yeah. I would never rebuke or turn someone down for asking it because it shows a lot of thought and a lot of insight. Um, but I'd also want to speak more to what faith actually is. And yes, it is evidence in something. Uh, it's hope in something unseen. But to have true faith is a trust or a confidence or a belief because of prior experience. Mm -hmm. I think if I, if I can use the example, when I jump in the car and drive off today, I'm going to come to a stoplight, I'm going to put my foot on the brake, uh, and I'm not doing that out of, in order to stop the car, I'm not doing it out of blind hope that the car will stop, although mm -hmm. my car's getting a little bit older, so maybe it is. Um, <laughs> but I'm doing it because of repeated experience. Every time I put my foot on that brake, a certain action has happened. The car has stopped. So I have faith in my car stopping because up to this point, it hasn't failed me yet. Okay. Uh, so I think when we look at faith in God, we can look at 
um, historical evidence and observations and replications of time where he's come through and through and through. Um, and we can actually put our faith in that and our trust in that, not just blindly hoping for something else. Right, absolutely. So I think where, where you're going today, Phil, is where we're going to go is that there, there are actually evidences. Yes, absolutely. So, so we're not just blindly thinking your car is going to stop. We're not just blindly thinking there must be a higher power up there. But today what we're going to talk about are those evidences that mm -hmm. uh, show or demonstrate or at least indicate indicate that there is a higher power. And our, our personal belief is that there is. 100%. So we'll give that away yes. right up front yeah. here. Um, and so we'll go into that. But I also think it's interesting. I think this question is relevant for this reason is I think that Leo Tolstoy had the, a famous quote where he just basically said, I am so terrified that everything I'm doing in this life uh, could have no purpose. In other words, if there is no God and there is no afterlife and there's just nothing, but we eat and drink and tomorrow we die and this life is all we have, then basically, um, you know, there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of faith, hope, and mm -hmm. purpose in that. Um, so this is a relevant question. Um, and then I also think it's funny, too, because, you know, we talk about faith and a lot of the objections come from my atheist and agnostic friends. But I will say this, even my agnostic friends, when a loved one dies, they yeah. will say yeah. he is looking down on us from a better place. Mm -hmm. So there is some faith there, right? Yes. There is something that they're believing, like that their loved one um, is not only in a better place, but that that person's also now somehow omnipresent and can still use their mm -hmm. eyesight to see too. So there's a little bit of interesting there. So, okay, now there's your introduction to the question. Is faith based on evidence or science or is it only a motive? I think the first thing we're going to do is start off with some what are called cosmological arguments. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so for those of you that need things unpacked, Cosmology is simply the study of the origins of the universe. Mm -hmm. And the first one is the argument from efficient causality mm -hmm. or from cause and effect. Phil, start <laughs> there for us. Well, the um, evidence from cause and effect is actually goes back to Aristotle, who a couple of thousand years ago first put this out there. And I like it because it starts broad. I mean, as, as we've said, we're both Christians and we believe in the Christian God. But um, this idea doesn't yet tap into the idea of a Christian God. It just taps into the idea that there's a bigger being out there mm -hmm. than just us. Uh, and the idea that for every action or every event to happen, every change to happen, there needs to have been um, an initiator, some, an agent of change that caused that. If this pen that I have here uh, just picked up and flew across and hit the door over there, like, no one would think that that just happened for no reason. Right. There must be a reason why this happened, and it could have been me throwing it, but it, there had to be a reason. There had to be an agent or initiator. The idea from cosmo, cos, um, sorry, cosmology, cosmology, there we go, is that if we go far back, far enough back to the beginning of the universe, there must have been an initial being or someone that began all of events all of life, all the growth there, put the universe together and put the world together and put us together um, because everything has to have a first start. Mm -hmm. So Aristotle's point was he believes that there was a, a being outside of the material that started the material, that initiated the material, which is what we interact with on a daily basis. Yeah, and we see, it's, it's interesting because we see cause and effect all the time. Uh -huh. And then, but then when it comes to this universe, the just the how 
amazing it is, the ubiquitous order and the complexity of human life and the complexity of the universe, a lot of, for some reason, a lot of human beings just say, oh, well, nothing caused that. But what you're saying is there is this reality that there always is cause and effect from our existence. And Peter Kreeft, who has definitely inspired a lot of my knowledge when it comes to the subject of Christian apologetics, he wrote this in his book, a uh, handbook on Christian apologetics, which I highly recommend. Uh, he says, it is, it is absurd to believe that all of reality is dependent on nothing. Mm -hmm. So I, what I hear you saying, Phil, is all of reality is based on something or someone. Yeah. Very good. Um, and here's what I would say, just to, and I'll probably repeat that, this over and over again today, to encourage people. Because, you know, we go through life on this earth. There's a lot we experience. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of sorrows and joys. Mm -hmm. But the reason why this question matters is that you are not here by accident, but you're here with a purpose and designed by God. And we want to encourage you, if you're listening today, mm -hmm. that we hope that uh, these arguments not only hit your head, but they hit your heart and that you know that your life matters. Um, all right, that is the argument from efficient causality. Mm -hmm. Number two is what we would call the biological argument. Phil, can you unpack what the biological argument is? Yeah, sure. The biological argument just refers to life and the idea that as far as we know, um, life has to create life. A non-material, a non-living thing cannot create life. So for there to be life, at some point there needed to be a being who was alive who could then go ahead and initiate all the life that we see. And that being would have lived outside of, it would have been self-sustaining, eternal, and lived outside of our realm. So the biological argument is simply that only life creates life. Uh, and so for us to have life, there must have been an initial life force or life source to create it. Okay, that's pretty interesting. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy I got you on here today because that's one I hadn't heard before. There you go. You know, I like so, it. You know, I went to seminary and studied all this stuff, but you've just added another piece to the puzzle. Yeah. And again, all of these are uh, helpful indicators and signs that there is a higher power. And then in your argument here, he's a personal being. Mm -hmm. He's not just uh, some abstract uh, force. force, but rather he is a person. Yeah, I think as we go through the arguments, we'll begin to see that it, it, it narrows from a something out there to someone, to someone who has certain character traits. Awesome. All right. So that is the biological argument. Uh, and then also, there is the argument from irreducible complexity. Mm -hmm. Can you share what that is? Yeah, so I really like this argument. Um, irreducible complexity means that there are systems in our world that... Um, only function when they're in their whole. That if you were to break them down into their parts, they would have very little function, very little advantage. And if you think about the evolutionary argument, um, creatures would have evolved and gained certain features or traits because it gave them an advantage. Now, there are things that only give us an advantage when they're in their whole. And there would have been no, no advantage if they'd only developed shortly. I'll give you an example of the eye. Our eye only operates and gives us vis vision and advantage as a human because all the pieces are there to make it work. If you take away those pieces and just go back to a, the first initial cells and then the first nerve, why would the first nerve have evolved or grown 
it wouldn't have given the creature any advantage whatsoever. So it, it wouldn't have lasted in the evolutionary idea. That creature wouldn't have continued and passed on. Um, but the eye works because all the pieces are there and it functions. So that gives me some indication that not only, as we talked about, there's, there's a, an agent that caused everything, but this agent was thinking thoughtfully and intentionally about mm -hmm. putting together life in a way that made sense for us. Yeah. And I believe, I believe that the, uh, our God gave us the eye and designed it in one hit. It didn't evolve over millions of years. It was given in one hit, given to us straight away, intentionally and purposefully so that we could have sight. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is there's a lot of intentionality yes. just right up front when we look at uh, the very complex human organ, which yeah. is our eye. And so what you're saying is this is not an organ that is um, appearing to be only relevant after some sort of evolutionary process, mm -hmm. but right out of the gate, the eye has great intentionality behind it from the very beginning. Yeah, it, it seems to have been designed on purpose, um, and it would be difficult to reconcile that it would have evolved over millions of years. Right, absolutely. And then just I wanted to add a layer to that too, uh, because, okay, so the eye is a very complex mm -hmm. organ, but then in addition, it sees uh, so much uh, beauty uh, that an intelligent designer mm -hmm. created. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it has an ability to recognize beauty, an ability to recognize uh, design. Uh, but then also I wanted to add something to that too, is uh, I know that the, uh, years ago, my wife and I had a, a house in Southern Oregon and we had an nice. apple tree in yeah. our backyard and of course I grew up as uh, a boy that was mainly playing video games and causing trouble <laughs> with my friends in the neighborhood okay. so I wasn't that interested in gardening but then of course as you grow and mature you start to appreciate things more so I see this this apple tree and it's just amazing all the apples it's producing and then of course mm -hmm. we go out there and pick the apples and we make some apple pie with it but even in that whole process you're seeing um, a tree that is changing and growing. You know, it just it just all seems to be not a random chance yeah. that this is all happening, but that there's a higher power that's made this all work together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can I touch on that? Because one of the exciting yeah. things that we're starting to learn as we move into the information information technology age is not just computers are based on information and technology, but life is based on information. Okay. Uh, yeah. And an apple seed has the information to grow into an apple tree and to reproduce seeds and go on in this cycle. Where did that information come from? Hmm. That, that's what I think as we get to know more about information technology and a lot of scientists are working on this at the moment, we'll be excited because all of life, all of creation is built on information, which tells me that there is probably someone there who designed that information to start off with. Very strong. All right, so, so far, we've said there is the argument from efficient causality, the biological argument, um, and then also the argument from irreducible complexity. And then here is one that I think piggybacks on all of those, and it is the argument from the world interacting as a whole. So the way that this argument goes is that there's physical laws that work together, mm -hmm. such as H2O. So you have two hydrogen, hydrogen atoms, you have one oxygen atom in H2O, and that is a physical law. Um, as you know, there are a ton of physical laws just like mm -hmm. that. Um, and then of course, just as a uh, kind of a side note, which is not really one, is we get water 
from this, yeah. which, by the way, is life. we need water to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's all somehow working together here. Um, but the argument from the world interacting as a whole is no component or part can act self-sufficiently, but they are interdependent. So therefore, there must be a unifying, efficient cause. So in other words, where did this all come from? Mm -hmm. How does it all work together uh, so, so well? in that sort of order. Mm -hmm. And the consistency that works together. Like it's, gravity works every time. There is a law of gravity, it'll work every time. Um, and I, I think that, that consistency, it speaks of instruction and order and intention, not just randomness and chaos. Right, absolutely. So in other words, we're not here by accident, but we're here with a purpose, yes. we're here with a designer. That's seems to be some life. thought behind it. Yeah. There seems to be some thought behind this. And so, all right. So those are four arguments that are called cosmological arguments. Uh, but there is also one other argument that we would call the psychological mm -hmm. or moral argument. Um, how would you get the ball rolling with that argument, Phil? Yeah, I think the moral argument is the idea that across all of humanity, there seems to be a general consensus of how we should behave towards each other mm -hmm. and what is right and wrong. Right. I say general consensus because I know <laughs> that there are times and this is, this is broken, but for the most part, most of us would all uh, recognize the Holocaust as a, an horrific event that should never be repeated again. Right. Uh, yeah. and we would look at maybe the child sacrifices of the Aztec times as abhorrent. That mm -hmm. should never be repeated again. Uh, and my question is, where did that kind of sense of right and wrong come from? Right. Is it just, does it just go with the times? Do we all get to decide for ourselves mm -hmm. what's right or wrong? Do we go with what the group decides is right or wrong? Which in instances of maybe the Holocaust is what happened mm -hmm. when the group decided to, to determine what was right or wrong. Yeah. So the idea of um, this moral argument is because there seems to be a consistency with what's right or wrong that transcends time and geography, it means there's probably something outside time and geography that has given us that idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And so now with that said, someone could push back and say, well, um, a lot of people don't have a conscience anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's probably some weirdos out there that think the Holocaust was just fine. True. And there's probably some weirdos out there that think that uh, you can kill your baby after mm -hmm. it's born, like the mm -hmm. child sacrifices and the Aztecs that you uh, mentioned there. Um, but I guess what the biblical argument would be is that everyone has a standard of right and wrong, yes. but over time, sin desensitizes yes. it. And if we just continue to be desensitized by our experience, by who we spend our time with, by our culture, by media, and what we intake, it can be weakened and weakened over yeah. time, depending on where you are, who you live with, what you're interacting with. Um, but then, what's, what's a strong part of the Christian argument is that when you receive Jesus into your life, he makes your conscience alive again to mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. So then he's going to give you a conscience that comes from him. But nevertheless, I digress. <laughs> the, the moral argument that you're making is that where does all this standard of right and wrong come from? Yeah. Because to your point, I don't know anyone that would say, yeah, it's okay to just rape a minor. Mm -hmm. Like, do you know, I, like, I don't know anyone that has ever told me that over a beer or something, no. you know, and so they're coming at, at us with um, a moral argument there that every culture would agree is true. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think there's a country I can name off the top of my head 
right now where it's like, okay, yeah, it's fine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to rape a minor or to rape anyone for that matter. So that is the argument um, from morality or the psychological argument. Um, and, you know, what's interesting to me is I reflect on this argument, Phil. I think most people I know have a line somewhere. Yeah. Right? There's a line in the sand somewhere. But then in addition, I would say this. In my experience, a lot of my atheist friends have a strong sense of moral obligation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Oh, of course. Advocating for human rights. Yeah. A lot. So where does that come from? And I think it's interesting because Tim, Tim Keller says this. If you believe that the universe just happened and that there is no God, but that somehow human rights still exist, you can't prove that. In fact, it takes a lot of faith to imagine humanistic values can arise from an impersonal universe. You have a lot of faith mm -hmm. and multiple beliefs, is mm -hmm. what he says, end quote. Um, and so what he's saying is, you guys, you're being inconsistent here. You're advocating for a lot of human rights, but yet you believe in no higher power yeah. that's not a personal being. So where, where are you coming up where with Where do those all values this? come from? Right. Yeah. I do think it's important to say that I don't think the Christian faith has a monopoly on behaving well. As, yeah. as you said before, I want to touch on that. A lot of my friends that don't have Christian faith, they're, they're generous, they're sacrificial, they're selfless, which to me just gives a, a bigger picture of all of humanity. All of humanity has in their hearts a picture of what's right and wrong. Correct. And so today, I think we're going after the evidences or reasons to believe. Um, I think next week we'll hit more on, okay, you, you've hit on the reasons to believe that God exists, but what about Jesus? And uh -huh. then, of course, in every religion, there's hypocrites, including ours, mm -hmm. uh, and that's extremely unfortunate. But that doesn't take away from the truth of the existence of God or the validity of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. All right. So um, if you've been inspired by any of these arguments, we want to encourage you also to check out the book by Peter Kreeft, because there's 14 more arguments that he has. Um, in addition to the ones you've heard today, it's a handbook on Christian apologetics. Um, and so next time, I think that's what we'll, we'll answer, okay. Phil, is, all right, so you've given us a lot of indicators or reasons why you believe in the existence of God, but what about Jesus? Mm -hmm. Because he's the one that would point us towards Christianity rather than uh, Islam or Judaism yeah. or another faith religion. Yeah. So we understand that there likely is a God and now through Jesus we get to know more about what this God is like. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, while we have shown that there is evidence for believing in a higher power that has created everything, um, the gospel is what transforms lives. Mm -hmm. And the gospel is the good news that God sent his son that's the incarnation, that God sent his son to die on the cross for sin, that is, to bring reconciliation between you and the Father, and that on the third day he rose again, conquering death, and is demonstrating that there is an afterlife. Uh, and so it, when we believe that message, we receive forgiveness, life, and salvation. And next week we will hit on that point, which is, why should I believe in Jesus and not some other founder of another religion? Sounds good. If you have been blessed by the message today, we want to encourage you to subscribe or share. Uh, if you also have a question that you would like for us to answer on this podcast, you can submit it to hello 
at sjdenver.org, and we'll see you next time.